Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 106 with Huntington Baseball Company. Welcome to episode 106 of Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. When I started Makers of Sport, part of the reason that I chose that name was because I loved the maker mentality. From the craftsmen of yesteryear making handmade goods to the digital craftsmen of today making digital items, these makers, specifically the ones in sport, are the people that I wanted to celebrate. Today, we have one of the former makers of sport as my guest for this episode. He is an industrial designer with a diverse experience designing physical products in numerous industries, including Reebok, Bath & Body Works, and more before launching his own company. He leveraged his passion for baseball and his product-making skills and turned them into a business centered around creating handmade goods, celebrating America's pastime. Operating out of a small workshop in Boston, his products have appeared on the likes of Uncrate, Esquire, and more. With no baseball in play due to the unfortunate ramifications of COVID-19 and social distancing, I'm very happy to talk baseball and welcome to the podcast, William Peebles, proprietor and craftsman of the Huntington Baseball Company. Welcome aboard, man. Thank you very much, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah, so uh, I, originally my plan was to try to have this podcast launch around opening day, but obviously things change. So how's the uh, how's family holding up with the quarantining and the social distancing? Well, maybe this still can launch on opening day. We'll see. <laughs> Depending on when you want to put it out there. Uh, we're doing great. Family's happy, healthy. Uh, everybody is working and trying to learn. We have two young kids, and so that's, that's a big challenge, trying to get uh, everybody on a school schedule and a work schedule without you know, being up all night. Yeah, it's been challenging around my house with, um, as I was even trying to write the <laughs> the show notes for this podcast, I've got my son's fighting over Fortnite, my daughter's <laughs> crying, She's she'll be two in, in a couple weeks. So it's been, it's definitely been a challenge. But before we get into the Huntington Baseball Company, I'd like to give listeners a look into your the preceding experiences you've had. So let's sort of set the stage. Um, longtime listeners of this show know that I kind of have this unrealized dream to be an industrial designer and to design sneakers. That was one of my original goals. Uh, and actually, I think you and I actually even talked about this at uh, yes. at MLC. So any anytime I get someone on the show <laughs> that comes from that path, I always tend to nerd out. So I understand that you attended the Massachusetts College of Art and Design and received a BFA in industrial design. So I'm curious, how did you discover that field? I mean, that's one of those industries that you kind of have to go deep to even understand that, that 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 exists, right? Like graphic design feels like it's sort of easy to discover, like, oh, who makes logos and these types of things. But when it comes to products, like the reason, the way that I discovered industrial design was literally reading through Slam Magazine and seeing, oh, here's people that design sneakers. Oh, what that is actually called is an industrial designer. So how did you even discover that that was a thing? And then what led you to uh, pursue that in uh, official means of art school? Um, I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, I went to MassArt uh, right after high school, and I went there with a 
planned double major of illustration and graphic design. Um, I knew I could draw, so that was you know that was the illustration part, and the graphic design part was just people saying, "Hey, man, uh, you're going to art school. What are you going to do to make money? Um, you should look into graphic design." And I really didn't know a whole lot about that either. We had a, a small arts program at my high school, but it wasn't really comprehensive. Uh, so I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked to draw and I liked to create art. Um, my the last couple of years of my high school experience was taking, you know, every art course that was offered, you know, ceramics and painting and still life and all that stuff. And uh, so I just dove in and I got to school and I realized I was not an illustrator. I learned that pretty quickly. Uh, you know, despite being able to draw, that just wasn't for me. And freshman year at MassArt is like a foundation course. So you kind of feel things out and uh, you can kind of go wherever, you know, wherever you whatever path you want to take. Um, so I, you know, I just decided you know, I'm just going to try a little bit of everything. And the RA at my dorm was a industrial designer and he would have all these models that he was making in his, in his dorm room. Like, this is the coolest stuff ever. Like you're actually, I mean, none of it was functional, but it was all made out of foam and painted and like, you're actually creating things like, right. So that's really when I kind of flipped it and, uh, like I'm going to be an industrial designer. This is, this is the path for me. Because I want to actually make things. Right. Right. There's something about having that tangible thing in your hands versus looking at something on a screen or even just an, illust- uh, an illustration, right? Something that's sort of 2D. Yeah, totally. And even the drawing style was cool. So I went to MassArt in 95 as a freshman, graduated in 99. So it was right on the, right when it turned from analog to digital. It was hand skills the entire time I was, when I was there. And then as soon as I left, uh, what programs do you use? Like, uh, <laughs> none. So, <laughs> right. Right. Is, is that, so that drawing style, is that something that is specifically taught? Cause it seems like when you look at, yeah, you know, especially for me in the sneaker space, it all kind of looks the same, right? Like you can't pinpoint who actually drew this thing. Right. Yeah. That was definitely, there was a, an industrial design drawing class and you know, you learned how to use markers and, uh, you know, you create like a vignette with ground up chalk and <laughs> you know, you're rubbing it on the background and, making all this uh, kind of crazy looking stuff. But yeah, it was definitely a course that we took and you could, you didn't have to follow that kind of uh, style, but you could create your own stuff. But, you know, it was definitely encouraged. If you're going to be showing stuff in front of a boardroom and you know, this is the kind of things they're used to seeing. So give them something that makes them feel comfortable. Um, so that, that's how we handled it. That's cool. That's awesome, man. So like many of us in this niche of the design business, uh, there, there's not a lot of coverage of the intersection of sports and art or design, um, especially if you go to, it seems like, traditional design schools and, and art programs and whatnot. So we sort of have have created this space, and it's gotten better over the years with with the resources that are, that are available now, like this podcast or some of these sort of blog posts and Twitter and communities and stuff that we have now. But back then, it would have been a little harder to discover that being able to create or design in sport was a thing. So where did you kind of develop that in, that sort of intersection of the two, right? Like you had the love of sport, you had the love of, of art. Where did you find that this was a possible intersection to explore as far as like resources you were able to turn to or magazines or whatnot? Yeah, so I actually kind of tripped over it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of... So at MassArt, it was a tech-centric school at that time. Um, the two main professors in the industrial design department were guys who had designed, you know, the first computers. 
uh, and handheld electronics and things like that. So it was very, very tech heavy. And Boston is pretty tech heavy. It's also very mm-hmm. uh, footwear heavy. It's a big a tech startup town right yeah. now too, right? Oh yeah, yeah. and the footwear with yep. the pretty much yeah. Everyone except Nike is has has a presence here, um, and they do kind of through Converse and uh, probably some, another brand too. But um, did that originate? Because I mean, you think it's because of the Boston Marathon, maybe? Uh, no, it's actually the leather industry in Boston. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Boston was a big leather town back in the 19th century. Um, there's a, a part of Boston that's actually still called the Leather District. Uh, there's no leather gotcha. being tan there anymore, but it's that's still what it's called. Um, so they were, they were producing a lot of leather goods here 150, 150 years ago or so, um, including shoes and, and sporting goods. A lot of sporting goods were made here. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually got into Reebok through my brother-in-law, uh, who was you know my my then girlfriend's uh, brother. But he he worked at Reebok in finance, and he hooked me up with uh, somebody in the design department, saying, "Hey, you know this guy's looking to do an internship. You know, any any way you can uh, find space for him, it would be much appreciated." So I went in there. I landed in the color department, and I was putting those marker skills and. Uh, colored pencils to use, doing colorways for all kinds of different stuff running, mostly mostly running. There was a, also a little bit of cleated, uh, which is what I did kind of at the end of my tenure there. Mm-hmm. Which that would have been, I mean, 90, 96 to 99. I mean, that would have been, Yeah, <laughs> I want to say, Allen Iverson. Yep. Uh, that, was a, that was a big time to be at Reebok, right? You got Allen Iverson as a, as a premier face for the brand. Yep. Reebok Classics, I remember being really, like, kind of had a reawakening at that moment. I wore a lot of those back then. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Shaq, he was there. And yep. uh, the big hurt. Sean Kemp. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Sean Kemp had a pair of Kemp's. Did you get to work with any of those athletes during that time? Was, was there anything that sort of, like, hit you as, wow, this is, a, this is an interesting career to pursue as far as, like, that intersection of sport and, design, and you know, your industrial design track? Which, I guess you were, a, a, were you a graphic designer there? As opposed to, I know some of these kind of have a crossover between the terminology. Yeah. So uh, in the color department, you're kind of neither. <laughs> you're taking these outlined drawings. And so the, the design has already been established. And we're like, how do we make this look cool? Like, you know, this is going to go to Foot Locker for this colorway. Another one is going to go, you know, wherever. Mass market, or it's going to be for us exclusively, or it's going to go to the athlete themselves. Or, you know, how do we make this look cool? So that's, how, that's what we were doing. Um, but while I was there, I mean, I just took that opportunity to really just kind of walk around and introduce myself to different people and see what they're doing. And not so much in a, you know, like give me a project type of thing, but you know, how can I help you type of thing? Um, and I just wanted to see what they were working, see what they're working on, see how they worked. That's what I was really interested in. And that's probably the biggest thing that I got out of it. Um, at the end, I did get to work with some of the athletes. I worked with, uh, Frank Thomas, and uh, Roger Clemens came through. That was pretty cool. Um, it's not really that is cool. You know, the relationship wasn't like they were in the office every day, but you know, they'd come in right, 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 you know, once a quarter or something like that, and they'd, they'd see new stuff. So that was pretty cool. Frank Thomas was about the biggest baseball player uh, at that time, so that was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, big time. Now he's selling like testosterone or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So when when did you? I read that you met you experimented early on with making a your first baseball right, and then you sort of stopped. You quit. You weren't satisfied with it. So you you there was a there was a ten year gap after which I want to get into. Was it during this time in Reebok, which you where you were experimenting with that, or was that previously? 
Yeah, I did. I, I was, so I would spend a lot, I was broke when I was in college. I had no money. And so I would spend a lot of time in the library, just looking through uh, different magazines, like you know, all the design magazines and then art stuff. And uh, I mean, yeah, I just even go up there to get the newspaper um, that I noticed a, uh, on the cover of a Smithsonian magazine, I think it was 98 or 99, there was a uh, vintage baseball player who was, you know, wearing this old wool uniform and he was pitching and he was on the cover of the magazine. And like, I got to read this, you know, I'm the only sports fan in an art school. So this magazine was pristine right. when I picked it up. <laughs> um, but I'm reading through it and these guys, you know, they're making their own equipment. They have to, because none, you can't, you can't just go buy a 19th century baseball at the store. You have to, right figure it out and you have to make it. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. How did, <laughs> how did I not think of this? Um, so I took, I was looking at the pictures and I kind of figured out like, all right, this is, you know, this is the, the, the shape that it needs. And I was doing a little bit of pattern work at Reebok too. So I kind of had a, a sense of how you could turn something flat into something round or have something that has a round edge on it. And I'm like, all right, so I'm, I drew it out, laid it out, cut it, started sewing I'm like man this is this is terrible this is not working and I finished it and it just it looked like an orange that someone stepped on it was just it was <laughs> bad um and it really I kept it on my on my bureau for years and I, I wish I still had it um I never in a million years thought that I would ever be doing what I'm doing now um and I'm a collector so yeah if if I had if I if I could go back and find anything from the last 20 years it would be that baseball thing <laughs> put it did you happen to have are there any pictures of it no i never took a picture of it um it oh, wasn't man. yeah that would be that would be a cool relic yeah for sure i mean it was not photo worthy um and I, I have some from when i started the business that are like oh man you're gonna you're gonna try to make money doing this um they, they, those are bad too but this yeah. is a pretty steep learning curve oh yeah i can imagine and, and i want to get into that so we uh, like a- after reebok you had this basically decade long career where um, you you worked in different various industries designing various products ranging from lighting fixtures to bath and beauty uh, products at, yeah. at, uh, at bath and body works to housewares at swing limited and so I, I, I do think that's interesting oftentimes we all when we leave school or whether that be nowadays you know kids aren't going to school and getting degrees to do some of this design stuff. But when you, when you sort of graduate high school or college, you're like, I want to go right into that thing, right? With that passion. Um, but you were able to develop what I would imagine is a valuable experience creating a broad range of products and sort of discovering how these major companies launch these products and brands. Yeah. Um, as well as learning about leadership and how to manage others. So I, I realize that 10 years is a pretty big gap to try to close uh, briefly. But if I was wondering if you could give us some insight into those experiences and kind of how they really prepared you for your eventual entrepreneurial endeavor in opening Huntington Baseball Company? So when I was at Reebok, I kind of, uh, just conversationally, I would talk about the things that I li- and, uh, that I liked. You know, I would read, you know, the, all the IDSA, uh, you know, the products, the, the product of the year, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, people were making things out of plastics. I think people were making, you know, just cool kind of innovative stuff. And, you know, I just let people know, like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about, doing some other stuff and it was a little bit uh verboten <laughs> in that office at that time i don't know if it's still that way or not but it's kind of like once you're in footwear you're in footwear and you live footwear 
And I'm like, I like footwear. Interesting. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy doing it. I have a lot of fun, but I don't know that that's necessarily hundred percent who I am. And I don't really want that to define my career, especially, you know, at age 21 or 22 or whatever I was. And right. so there were a couple of people in the office who, you know, like, like the horror movie, you know, like they look up and their eyes get all serious and like, run, get out, go do something, get out of the office, go run while you can. Yep. <laughs> I, I, exp- I, I experienced that too at my first job at a, at a sports marketing company. You kind of look around and some of these people are just like, they've been there for a long time, man. And they're in yeah. the corner and they look miserable and they're, and they're, and they're, um, and not, I mean, this is not to comment on sort of things, status symbols as far as cars and whatnot, but I would see that they were dri- still driving like, you know, 92 Camrys and whatnot. And it was like, I don't know if like, you've been here 10 years, man. I, I don't know if this is where I want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And the, the thing that kind of struck me too is that, um, the pay scale at Reebok was, was pretty good. I wasn't making any of that money, but if you were a senior designer, you were definitely making some money. And, uh, at least at that time. And, uh, you know, some of these guys are driving Porsches and, Oh, wow. You know, they were the ones who were saying, you know, get out. <laughs> so were they, were they independent back then or did Adidas own? Them uh, this is pre Adidas. Uh, okay. but just, so I think Adidas purchased them, uh, I don't know, right around 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that. Gotcha. Um, so, so you moved, you kind of moved into like a manufacturing uh, product designer. Yeah. So I, Blackman Design Associates. Uh, the economy kind of took a bit of a turn after I graduated uh, in 99. It wasn't, wasn't a super strong job market. And, you know, and I probably would have been okay if I just kept my mouth shut at the office. I probably could have continued uh, doing what I was doing, but I wasn't 100% satisfied. Um, so when it came time to laying people off, I was, I was on that list. And so I just started looking into the, the types of jobs that I thought I would be doing as an industrial designer. And uh, the first job I got was at a lighting company in New Jersey and uh, for you know no money, basically, just, just a job. Um, and funny thing is, like, you know, 10, 10 months or so into that, I think, uh, or maybe it was six months, I think I said, you know, I'll take the job for this, this low pay grade. Uh, but you know, in six months, you know, give, you know, give me six months. Let me show you what I can do after six months. And, uh, you know, I'd like to discuss, you know, a raise of, of some sort and like, okay, sure. We'll do that. Right. Sounds good. And after six months, uh, they're like, <laughs> it was basically like a no go. So I was miserable. And then I think I was there for 10 months. And then at a certain point, uh, there was a position that opened up at one of the factories that produced the things that we designed. And like, mm-hmm. why don't you go work over there a little bit? <laughs> so it was like, I ended up getting traded for like a, a seat of uh, solid works or something like that. It was, it was, uh, it was humiliating. It was horrible. So I ended up working there for like 10 months, uh, another 10 months. And that was a terrible work environment, but a really cool learning experience because I was working with glass and we were, working with artisans in uh, Murano, Italy. So they were producing this really high-end stuff, and you know, I'd never done anything like that before, so that was pretty cool. And from there, I went to uh, Bath & Body Works designing uh, the bottles for their skincare line. Right, which, which is uh, obviously a, a pretty major major brand. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, especially then. At that point, it was, it was new-ish. I think they'd only been around two or three years. So it was the the growth was like if you look at it on a chart, it's just going straight up like a rocket into space. Um, yeah, that was that was probably one of the first times that I noticed a like a 
almost like a branded store, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you kind of have like the Apple store of store of, of that type of world. Um, because previously, if you went to a, like a mall, these these types of products would be in um, like a Macy's or whatever, right? As opposed to having its own sort of branded environment, which I thought was interesting. Because obviously all the sort of your, your, your girlfriends and uh, that you... I would have had back then as far as I'm saying that like I was like some, some kind of lazy <laughs> I'm saying like my 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 literal like girl friends not girlfriends would were all obviously be spraying that stuff in our high school classrooms or yeah. whatnot and like <laughs> those types of things so it's like everybody was familiar with it from that yep yeah they did they they, they did create you know probably one of the first uh branded stores you know where everything in that store was their own stuff yeah um and it was part of a bigger company it's part of the limited so there's, you know, the limited and express and Victoria's secret. And there's all these brands. We all kind of work together uh, on, on some stuff. You notice like when you see them in a mall, if you ever get to a mall again, that they're all grouped in the same areas. And a lot of times they, they, they share yeah. square footage, but they're divided in a way that looks like they're not sharing square footage. Um, right. So, yeah. So, so it seems like that the longest place that you worked outside of obviously your current business uh, was this next location that you went to, Swing Limited? Yeah, yeah. So that was that was actually what I wanted to do right out of school. I applied to that uh, office uh, right. That was for the the first you know, resume I sent out was to them. They I had done another internship at the very end of college where I was working in an industrial design office um, in the model shop, and I worked there for three months. It was a summer internship, and one of the the girls who worked there, she went on. She left. That, that, that office is called Altitude. They're in Somerville, Mass. And she left Altitude and went to Swing. And she was a product designer there. And uh, she encouraged me to apply over there. And it just, the timing wasn't right. And then soon after that, I ended up going to New Jersey. But um, when I saw the job posting, uh, while I was majorly hating my life at uh, Bath & Body Works, I'm like, I'm just into that, which is in Ohio. I'm, I'm moving back to Massachusetts. I'm going to get this job. And it was, it was a bit of an ordeal. We, my uh, girlfriend, now my wife, we, we owned a house in, in Ohio. So we had to pick up and you know, sell and move. And it, it was a big upheaval. Um, and she was pretty sick of being uh, uprooted <laughs> uh, every couple of years yeah. uh, for me. But uh, we're, we're back. Well, and, and to sort of, let me just like, I guess to let listeners know who that is, because obviously that's like a, a, almost like a holding company, I guess, but it, it, it kind of has like the, the uh, nicely designed modern home office sort of things like Crate and Barrel and exactly, yeah. Nordstrom. And did it have like the, the fashion aspect back then with the Neiman Marcus and Kate Spade and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it kind of, so when I got there, it was very much our brand. It was the swing brand in Crate and Barrel. That was like the, that was the moneymaker. I see. Um, uh-huh. and, and so every, every, we designed for ourselves and then we would sell it, uh, sell it to our partners. Uh, and Crate and Barrel was the biggest one, but you know, it ended up growing into, you know, Borders and Barnes and Noble and Office Max and some, and, and Nordstrom. Like, so it was kind of, it was the straight through line when I went there in the beginning. And then it just kind of split in at the end where we're doing high end and then we're doing Office Max. Um, so it was kind of, right. but it was, it was still the, the, the swing look and the swing brand. And, uh, it was a really cool, cool place to work and a really great, great people were there and very creative atmosphere, very collaborative. 
Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's really what I wanted to be. And I wanted to be in this group of people who are creating something, you know, with purpose, you know, like this is, this is us that has our name on it and we're putting it in these, you know, partnerships that are, you know, we know what they, they love what we're doing. So, and that's like, that's the biggest motivation, right? You want to make something cool. You want to make something that you like. And that's what everybody at that office did. Right. Now you, I understand you were there until sort of fall 08. Did you start and, and Huntington started, looks like in July of 2009. So did you start kind of reawakening this, or rekindling this old passion for making baseballs at that time? Or was that something where you just sort of said, I'm out, I got to go all in if I'm going to do this? Um, well, no, again, this is you know, another one of my hard luck stories. In the uh, fall of 08, October 08, uh, the economy crashed again. Uh, yep. You remember, everybody remembers that. That was, that yep, was bad. Definitely remember that one. Yeah. That was bad. That was like the beginning of the makers movement, right? The, the market crashed and I already had like this, I'd already started creating a list of things that I wanted to do. And I was just, I just wanted to do it for myself, you know, just cool, old looking baseball pieces that I wanted to make for me. I had no intention of ever doing it as a business, but like, Hey, you know, this like a, a chest protector that would look cool on the wall. Um, I want to make a glove cause uh, just cause it's cool. Um, and I would definitely want to go back and try making a baseball again. Um, but you know, it was just a list. It was not a, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't, like personal home projects to put exactly, in your- yeah. It's like the opposite of the honey do list. It was, you know, I'm going to do this for me. Yeah. Uh, it's not it has nothing to do yeah. with painting the the, uh, the entryway. <laughs> like I'm just when I have some downtime, I'm going to make a baseball, or I'm going to make a chest protector, or I'm going to make something like that. Um, so I had I had the had the plans for it, but I didn't have an opportunity to really do it. Uh, and then when the because the hours were long. Um, it was like, you know, like a 10 to 10, get in there late and then you work late and then you go to the gym and then you go to bed. Um, it was kind of a typical young designer, uh, hours lifestyle. Um, and it was, it was draining. So there was no real personal time. Um, but so October 08, I had, I think my daughter was six weeks old when the, when the market crashed. And I think I went to work on a Tuesday, uh, didn't have a job by Thursday. Like it was like that, like overnight, basically, you know, uh, hey, think something's going to happen. And then before the week is even over, the office is closed. Um, orders were canceled for really what did it for us was we had we worked 18 months ahead and the 18 month ahead orders, were, which was like, you know, the holiday 2009. Those orders were canceled, which was terrible. But then we started getting cancellations for 08, which was devastating. Um, right. So I had nothing to do. And then I had a young, I had a newborn and I just like, all right, well, this is, this is the moment. This is when you do it. Um, you've got time. <laughs> there's no, there's no office hours tomorrow. So whatever free time you get during naps or whatever, kick it. Like we're just doing it. This is now's the time to start drawing. So I started laying it out and I think, think about my domain in January started creating product uh, for real in February and like making patterns, things like that. I went to the baseball hall of fame. Uh, a friend of mine got me in that he worked as an exhibit designer there. And he's like, let me know what you need. The door's open and I can get you into the archives. I'm like, I'll be there next week. <laughs> I'm going to make plans and I'm going to Cooperstown. Yeah. So dove really deep into the history, uh, taking measurements that, everybody 
who's watching me do this thought that I was insane. Uh, who brings a pair of calipers to the baseball hall of fame, taking pictures of, you know, if I just photographing a baseball, I took 16 pictures. I didn't just take like a, a head on shot. I would rotate that ball every, every which way. So I had every single surface mapped and counting stitches, noting stitch type, like what material it's made of, uh, how, how thick they are, how close they are together, how close they are to the seam. It was, it was bonkers. And I did that with gloves too. Right. And, uh, so that was February. I went back again in May to basically, you know, proof my prototypes, make sure that the things that I was making were actually correct. So I do a side by side comparison and say, all right, I got this, or I need to need to work on this detail. Um, and I don't know, I showed it to friends in June, July, something like that. And like, Hey, I want to buy one. I'm like, okay, I can, I'll make you one. And then they started telling their friends and it went from uh, me selling to friends to me selling to their friends to me selling to people that I'd never even heard of. And then all this traffic on my website and now it's a business. So it was a, a one year overnight success. <laughs> so you had, you had even went so, f- so far as to set up a website. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I knew at, at a certain point that it was potential for a business, but I was still, yeah. you know, maybe it was going to be a side side hustle type thing. Cause I was still actively looking for a, an office job. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's interesting. Um, that we're having this conversation, I think at this point in time, cause it's sort of like, um, there's a lot of people that are in that spot that you were in, yeah. right. Where they either got laid off or they're furloughed. And, and it's, it's sort of that time where of course there's the whole mental health aspect. And we hope that people are, uh, you know, taking care of themselves and not, you know, if, if you can't physically think about what your future is going to be like, then that's obviously okay. Right. Because of the sort of ramifications of this thing, right. but if you are, I mean, there, this is an interesting time to sort of take stock in what you've done and, and be like, what can I do from here, right? Because right? hopefully you're getting some type of unemployment or some type of like, you know, essentially funding that a lot of us didn't have when we, you know, would have either gotten laid off or couldn't find clients or whatnot. It's an interesting opportunity to, to pursue those things. Yeah, you know, this is another one of those eras where you never really know what's going to be around the corner. I mean, nobody nobody knows. As we're talking right now, there's no cure there's no there's really no plan in place which is the scariest part so what you take out of that uh if you're going to create something for yourself is kind of up to you and like i i'm kind of excited about you know what is going to happen 6 12 18 months from now cuz you know what what's the marketplace going to look like you know physical stores right. don't open for a while what is what is the marketplace going to look like you know what are people going to be doing cuz at a certain point everybody has to get back to work and if most people are doing that from home, you know, we could be looking at a completely different marketplace very shortly. So, well, and it sort of feels like we were already, at least in the U S having this reawakening of handmade craft and like locally sourced products, you know, handmade goods and kind of having that stamp of approval from a maker and not just like these big, massive faceless corporations, which, which is like, who knows where these products are coming from. So, I mean, with, with the, uh, I'm actually a a prime example with the current state of the world is you, we've seen an increase in some of these like smaller businesses take on hand making these PPE materials for hospitals and whatnot. Right. Yeah. 
So it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. What what uh so the name Huntington Baseball Company, mm-hmm. right? We're kind of going back back to that. Um were you going by that at that time? Or was that something you came up, you eventually came up with that and was like, well, I gotta actually turn this into a business and I don't want to go by my name. So let me let me go with this. Describe that kind of history between that name, because you and I talked about that some up at up in uh or where, wherever the last, I guess Atlanta. Yeah. When we met. Yeah. So I actually I I drew a logo for this uh, probably in '04. Uh, just as uh, I wanted to make business cards for myself, like calling cards. So I would, as a collector, you know, I'd go out and I'd hit flea markets and things like that. And um, any antique dealers that were in the area, I wanted to know them and I want them to know me. So like, if you if you find old baseball equipment, I want I want to be the guy that you call. Um, yeah. So I made up. So per, as a, as a collector, right? At that as point. a collector, yeah. So Almost, yeah. and just so that it wasn't uh, just my name on a card, I came up with a name, and the the name was Boston American Baseball Company. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had these cards printed up, and I'd hand them out, and you know, some occasionally someone would call, and I'd buy an old baseball glove. So that was kind of like the the running name, and. At a certain point, like when I started thinking, like oh, maybe maybe this could be what I do for work, uh, I changed the name. I dropped the Boston because I didn't want it to be a regional thing. I didn't want to have. I didn't necessarily want it to have a like this is a neighborhood <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, business. Right. This is you know this is a, this is uh, wherever it needs to go. This is the business, um, and this is the internet. Like which was in a way that was still kind of an exciting time for the internet. <laughs> uh, right. It's hard to, when you look back on, on these things and like, you know, 2008 was, you know, like the web was different and stores were different on online. Uh, everything was different. Yeah. It's not like, it's like pre web 2.0. Yeah, right? yeah. At that point it was still, so no social media. Well, I guess Facebook was out, but it was still very much college based. Yeah. And Twitter was, you know, brand new. Uh, if it was even out in 08, I don't remember, but, yeah, uh, that was the period where I think the first I think I signed up for Twitter in 07 and then I I didn't do anything with it for like a year. Yeah, yeah. And my buddy was like, "Hey, you should check out Twitter." And it's like, "Man, I've been on there for a year, like nothing's going on." Yeah. It's like, "Oh, you got to follow people." Okay, cool. <laughs> tell people what you had for lunch. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was definitely it yeah, back then. I, I don't know if this is for me. Um, I don't know if I need to be on Twitter. But I think there's probably more productive <laughs> things I can do with my time. But yeah. uh, so the name Huntington Huntington Baseball Company it's it's named after Huntington Avenue, uh, which is where Mass College of Art is. So there's a little bit of personal history. There's most well, my personal history. There's personal baseball history, which is discovering that magazine and, and learning about this process. Right. Um, and then a quarter mile down the street is uh, Northeastern University, and on the campus of Northeastern is the Huntington or was the Huntington Avenue grounds which is where the first World Series was played. So there's uh, baseball history on that street. There's also art history on that street because it's known as the Avenue of the Arts. So the Museum of Fine Arts is on is between Mass Art and Northeastern. So in this you know quarter-mile stretch of road, there's personal history, there's art history, there's baseball history, and it, and it just and it sounds cool. So Yeah, that's perfect, man. As a brand as a branding guy, I love those sort of like hidden meanings where it's it's literally telling your story without being obvious, right? And punching people in the face right. with like, you know, Williams Baseball Company yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's not an Etsy store. It's, you know, it's, this is, this is a, at that time it was like, this could actually be a brand. Like, uh, I know I was sitting at a, uh, in, in a restaurant eating, uh, I think I was drinking a Guinness 
And I just put it down. I looked at my wife and I said, it's going to be called the Huntington Baseball Company. And it was like, boom, that was it. And I just started, started working on logos that night. That's awesome. So you obviously were planning a flag in a specific sport. And I'm curious, did you ever think outside that specific sport? Or was that kind of whole like obsession that baseball has because it feels like it is very unique sport and that there is this obsession with this vintage ephemera like i mean you don't see people going and playing vintage basketball or, right. or soccer games, right right yeah. exactly no there's a there's a love of, of history that is hand in hand with the base the baseball you watch today is the same baseball that was played 100 years ago essentially and the fact that you you can compare you know mike trout to joe dimaggio is like, that's what makes the game great. Like, you know, you have this comparative basis to say, you know, oh, Mike Trout is better or, you know, whatever. Like, Babe Ruth is the greatest player to ever play the game. Or no, Ty Cobb is. You know, and then you, you, you have this mathematical layout that says, this is the person right here. And then, you know, then there's always an mm-hmm. argument. Like, of course, but because you need the argument. The argument is actually what makes it fun. But, right. Yeah. So you, so, so you kind of have this mission of tying in this history and, and not, not essentially just to make baseballs, but to really just recreate the entire look of a bygone era, which I, I can imagine um, takes tons and tons and tons of research. And I mean, as, as designers, we tend to have this, this unfortunate thing within us that we want to make things perfect, right? So you're like trying to make things perfect. I'm curious if you could kind of describe like the importance of that that sort of recreating that bygone era to you, right? This, I guess kind of telling us about that mission where it's like, I'm not just making baseballs and I'm really trying to recreate this brand of what it used to look like in the most perfect way that I possibly can. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you just said it. <laughs> it's, you know, and, and sometimes I, I don't get credit as a designer because you know, like I'm going and I'm taking these really deep looks into into history and I'm, and I'm looking at a, at a physical object that's a hundred years old and saying, how do I remake this? And how do I make it look like, uh, not necessarily that it's a hundred years old, uh, cause I don't age things, but to make someone in 2020 feel like they're holding something from 1920. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot behind it, you know, like you diving into, you know, materials and, you know, um, uh, there's there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, like when I was a little kid, I had, and this is I, I got into baseball like backwards. I think because I think most people learn about it, like learn about the history much later. So I had my introduction was history. So I, I had an old neighbor friend who was this guy was in his mid seventies, and he saw us playing in the neighborhood. You know, a bunch of eight, nine, ten year olds playing baseball in a you know in, in someone's like side yard. And he would always be out on his, his porch listening to the Red Sox on the radio. And, you know, eventually, you know, we'd ride our bikes over there and he'd talk baseball. And he turns out he was a bat boy for the Boston Braves in the 1920s. So he wow. met and became friends with like these legendary names. Like he was, he was Babe Ruth's caddy. Like Babe Ruth would come play golf and he'd carry his clubs around. Like he's Babe Ruth's friend. Like, what? <laughs> He's, you know, 12 years old. He's like two years older than I was at the time. This is like a, 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 a Sandlot baseball movie yeah. right here, man. Like, <laughs> like that story, you know, meeting that kind of character. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. This guy lived a great life. He was uh, a colonel in the Air Force, uh, which is the Army at the time. But he, uh, 
he was, I don't think he fought with Ted Williams, but because Ted was, Ted was a Marine. Um, but he knew him and he was, he was friends with him. Like, this is like, like, these are just huge names. So as a 10 year old having, you know, and, and I was a reader too. So like you get into baseball or if I got into baseball, I want to read about it. So I'd get these books and, you know, out of the school library and like flipping through and like learning about all these, these players who played, you know, 80, 80 years prior to when I, you know, when I'm learning about it, all these guys were long dead. Um, so I got into it from a historical perspective and then, and then I started learning, appreciating more what I was watching on the field, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. coming up and that kind of stuff. You have more of an appreciation right. for those new players when you realize, you know, who the greats are and what they did. So when you see somebody doing it right in right in front of you, like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you have, you can appreciate it more. Um, so that's how I got into it. I got into it, you know, like I'm going to dive in a hundred years back and I'm going to work my way up to today. Yeah. So, so essentially you, you kind of view it as your mission to pay homage to that era, to the modern, let the modern baseball fan kind of see like what this era was about, this, the struggles that they dealt with in making their own apparel and, and, uh, and equipment and whatnot. Right. I mean, everything was uncomfortable, you know, like these guys were, they really wanted to play and then they didn't make a lot of money. They all had side jobs or they all had another career and baseball was what they did for fun. You know, Babe Ruth was not in that category. Babe Ruth didn't, you know, sell cars in the off season, but a lot of the guys, you know, they go back to the farm or they go back to the coal mines or, these are just these are rougher guys. They're not like you know, modern day baseball players. You know, even if you're making the league minimum, you don't need to work. <laughs> you can work out. You well, need- <laughs> yeah, and and there's this whole. I mean, now there's this aspect of like they're playing on like Kentucky bluegrass and like, yeah, yeah, and everything's manicured like fields, and flat, right? Whereas like you're not playing in a cow pasture anymore. Right. There's no stones, <laughs> and some people will refuse to play under under these certain circumstances because of of. You know, oh, I don't want to go out there and get hurt. Like, in, I'm I'm a basketball guy, obviously, being from Kentucky, and there's that whole, like, no one plays outside anymore. Yeah, right. You don't put, see people playing on the blacktop because they want to play in the gym because they don't want to hurt their knees and <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. So one one thing about your kind of business though is that in a you know if you, if you look at the the perspective of a graphic designer, right? Like we can essentially buy a laptop in 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 2020. You can buy a laptop. If you have an internet connection, you can do your work anywhere, anytime. Totally. Right. But and you're making physical products, there are certain parameters must need you need to have in place to make this work, right? From having a designated workshop area to your tooling to even developing vendor partners um, and those types of things. I mean, this is this definitely can't be a small task. So can you let us into that kind of uh, in that world a little bit. Where do you even? You mentioned a little bit how you sort of got your start, but I'm wondering if you could expand on that. I mean, how do you eventually turn this into a thing where now you have equipment in your house or your wherever you wherever you have your workshop, and and now you're actually this production facility? Yeah. So it, even now, it's still it's still small scale. It's, uh, it's just me in the shop. Um, occasionally, I have help uh, with certain things, uh, certain like. Uh, I have a partner who will help me with bats. You know, if uh, if I have a large bat order, then I have someone I can I can lean on for that. But for the most part, uh, all the leather work is done by me, and pretty much everything else. Um, so when I started this, I did everything by hand, like everything, everything by hand. Like if I'm cutting a baseball cover, I'm tracing it out on the template, and I'm marking all the holes, and I'm cutting it with scissors, and then I'm punching the holes with a with a hole punch. Um, it was, and it's insane. So in the very beginning, I made uh, four different 
baseball styles. I made an 1870s. I made an 1880s. I made a turn of the century. Oh, and the earliest one was 1850s. So the 1850s is a one-piece cover. kind of looks like a flower when it's flat. And then all the others are figure eight. And the earliest figure eight had 170 holes in it per cover. So 340 per ball, um, which is insane. Modern ball has 108. This had 170. And then I had 132 and I had 116. And that's the one that I settled on now because I think it's the most, I think it's the most beautiful. Uh, so that's the one. And it's uh, also the one that has the best success rate too, to be honest. Um, is that, is that the one that the makers of sport ball? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So I was doing that all by hand, you know, cutting, cutting, punching, everything. And, you know, marking with ink by hand. And I still do that by hand. But there wasn't a whole lot of tooling at that time. And it really wasn't until like 2012-ish where, you know, I, I could handle, you know, uh, small daily orders just doing it by hand. You know, at a certain point, you just get uh, forearms like Popeye from all this punching up leather and everything. But <laughs> yeah. um, at a certain point, I, got, I started to get bigger orders and I had to get tooling. So... I had the one right out of the gate that forced me was uh, this catalog called Red Envelope. Um, you probably don't know it, but your wife or mother-in-law does. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's like a gift catalog type thing, and it's it's not mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, they're primarily mailed to a female uh, client, but it's mm -hmm. uh, it's not a it's not women's products, but so it's kind of you know. For Father's Day, here's a bunch of like you know cool man gifts, you know, doing finger quotes. Um, right. So that, I think that was like a twelve dozen order, and it was like you know how fast can you turn this around? When can you get this to our distribution center? And oh, we're going to do some bats too, and you know we'll start with two dozen, and then it'll turn into you know six dozen or whatever. I forget the actual numbers, but twelve dozen, I'm pretty sure, was the first baseball order. Like uh, I'm not going to cut those all by hand, so. We got to get we got to get some tooling made. So that was the first big purchase. You know, the the cutting die was like a thousand dollars, and then the, the press I think was like eighteen hundred. So I'm like, oh man, this is, these are big expenses for me at the time. And I'm like, I don't, uh, I I can't do this by hand, but I, so I got to do this. I got to pull the trigger, and it was probably the best decision I've ever made because you know I've got all these pieces there, and everything is just exponentially faster. So, but you know, from there it's you know. So many, I mean, I, I, I can't count the number of cutting dies I have now, but, you know, just trying to, taking that, uh, uh, the initial, like, hand labor out of, like, the setup and, and being able to put the, the time into the handcraft is uh, so beneficial. But I, I, created, I created everything in here. I created the shop itself. This was a, a garage, and, like, uh, when we bought our house, we got flooded a couple weeks after we bought the house, had all our stuff down there. And so we lost all of our stuff and I had my workshop down there. I'm like, I, get, I got no, I have no couch anymore. <laughs> like all this stuff is ruined. Um, pictures are gone and I have my work table and like, and I'm standing in, you know, eight inches of water. Like I can't work here. So I had to move all that stuff up and wow. gutted the garage and just, just did a build up. I'm like, this is where I work now. This is, this is my just planted, <laughs> Planted my flag, you know, just right next to my house. Um, so it, yeah, okay. So it is. I was going to ask if it still was was um, in your sort of living quarters. I guess. Yeah. So it's like four hundred square feet, and like I've, I've outgrown it. I could probably have ten times this space, but 
it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if I'm cutting, then I need to move these pieces over here to that corner. And then, so I have room to lay out all my right. leather and then shift it back when I need to do something else. So something, something that I've noticed personally over running a creative based business and obviously interacting with other designers and seeing people come and go from a freelance perspective or starting little businesses and whatnot is that a lot of, a lot of creatives, creative minded people like ourselves don't necessarily do a good job of, of embracing this intersection of like art and commerce. There's sort of like this weird sellout mentality that, oh, it's virtuous to create, but it's not virtuous to sell those creations, right? <laughs> and so for me, like I tend to believe different because I think that there's actually something honorable about being a working artist. Yeah. And so I'm curious if you could share your perspective on that because obviously when you've been doing something now for 10 years, like this is not, you know, this isn't some little little baby side project, right? Like you're running a real business, taking real orders, dealing with real project management, sending invoices and that kind of thing. So what, what, how did you learn how to be a, a business person over that time? Uh, I had to, I had to learn as I went. I didn't know any of this stuff. I had no business, um, education. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, many times I feel like I still don't. Um, every, you know, anytime anything changes like tax laws or things like that, like I have to, I have to figure it out because I, I don't have, uh, who's going to do it right. for me. So like, I have to do that. Um, but as far as like art and design go, I kind of decided early that this isn't going to be like, I don't want to create a commodity cause I can't, the things that I make are, you know, oftentimes are expensive. Um, and they're, you know, you can buy a baseball at Target for $5 and people think a baseball is worth $5. I make baseballs that are that sell for $50. So how do I, how do I balance that? Like, you know, I can't compete on price. So I'm just going to kick, <laughs> I'm going to kick up the quality and I'm going to make it the best baseball you've ever bought in your life. And it's a baseball that's going to sit on a shelf in your house and you're going to look at it and you're going to do what I'm doing right now, which is you're going to pick it up and you're going to toss it around while you're talking on the phone or you're having a meeting it's like, you know, it's going to become an object. It's not going to become uh, this commodity that you hit into the woods and then you forget about it. So right. when, when I decided I was going to do this, like I'm going, this is going to be a, a balance of, of art and design. It's going to be, and craft. So I'm going to make it beautiful enough that you're going to want to buy it, of course, right? And that you're going to want to display it or that you're going to want to use it. Um, it's going to be durable enough that you can use it and it's not going to fall apart. It's not a piece of crap that you buy at the store, you know, for five bucks. Like that's, that's off the table and it's going to be a piece of art. Like I want it to look great. I want you to feel like you can put this thing in your house on display and people are going to say, Hey, that's cool. Where'd you get that? Um, so when I make it, you know, I sign, I still do like to this day, I still sign every single box that of a base of baseball that I make. I put in that box. I sign the box. Um, and I've done that for 11 years, <laughs> every single time. So every single piece is, is a piece of art. That's the way I look at it, and that's the way I treat it. So, Well, you've kind of created, at least from what I've noticed, obviously having purchased some balls myself, but but even following you on social media, this it's a whole branded experience, right? So you've got the from the construction of the baseball packaging to – you know, you've got like your printed, if you're doing it, I'm, I'm assuming all clients kind of get this printed uh, where, you, where you got my Makers of Sport logo right. on here and then you got the signed box and whatnot. But but also from an art direction perspective and how you're presenting yourself to the world through your social media with like this clear and kind of 
deliberate intent. Yeah. So, so how important is that to products, right? I mean, I would imagine that that's very important when it comes to trying to sell things is having this sort of trustworthy, every one of your photos, right, are definitely delivered with intention right. and not sort of random pictures. I wanted to come off as being uh, an honest expression of what I'm doing. So authenticity in the way that I present the products and myself is very important to me. Like, I don't want people to, who follow me uh, to feel like, oh, this is just another sales pitch. Like, cause I don't appreciate that as a viewer and I just, I want to, I want to put that, you know, I want, I want there to be authenticity in the things that I'm saying and doing and, um, and feel like people can, can trust the things that I'm saying to be actually true. You know, that's very important to me. Um, right. so, but then, you know, this is a creative problem solving to coming up with the packaging. You know, like I had the, I use the same box for every single baseball, but every single baseball is different. So the, the solution to that is make a beautiful box that works in every circumstance, right? And then I cover it in a way that is uh, customizable, uh, but in a way, you know, if someone buys a baseball, but it's custom, I can make a band and not have to, you know, charge them $200 setup fee, you know, to go get that letter pressed. You know, I can just right. do, I can do one single band and not, there's really... I don't even charge for it. I just, I just do it here. Um, but the box is, you know, the box is beautiful. Um, and it's, it, that's a letterpress box that, that I designed, uh, that works in every instance. So it's, you know, it's, it's little instances like that where, you know, create a problem solving, like, how do I actually get this out there and how do I make people want to pick it up? Right. Well, and you know that you've done a good job with that when in my instance, you know, two of you listeners actually are going to receive one of these balls. I'm going to be giving two baseballs away that William created for me with the makers of sport branding on it. But uh, the one that I opened, I, I didn't throw the box away, right? Like that's a totally another display piece yeah. on my bookshelf where it's like the baseball's on one side and the and the bookshelf is on the, on the other. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, nothing too. Like, I don't want that to be waste. That's nothing. Like I'm, I'm making a package because the product needs to be packaged and it needs to get to you safely because everything goes in the mail, but I don't want you to throw it away. I just, it's a paper box. You could put it in the recycling bin. I, I Please don't tell me that you do, but I hope people keep it, you know, and it's a beautiful yeah. thing. And when you're opening the package, you know, you take that band off and you open the box itself. And then there's the, the, the tissue and the foil. And it's like, yep. it's like opening a present to yourself. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of like in a, in a small way, the uh, sort of, unboxing experience of Apple products. Right. Have you, I mean, did, oh, yeah. was some, is that some of your inspiration with, with viewing the way that those sort of premium brands approach that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I still, I, I've lost count of how many iPhones I've had over the years, but I still have all the boxes. I could go count them and, <laughs> and tell you. Um, I'm one of those maniacs who keeps, yeah, same keeps way. stuff like that. <laughs> same, I've got like Mac boxes just in my garage, like mm -hmm. <laughs> iPhone boxes. Yep. Um, so kind of in wrapping up here, it's always amazing to me when people take something that they are good at or a skill that they've developed and then they apply it to a category that they're passionate about. So, so from a personal perspective, Makers of Sport has given me incredible opportunities over the years. I mean, I, you can't really put a monetary value to the experiences that, that this particular brand has taken me. And I'm curious, what are some of those experiences for you, whether it's making product for specific brands or agencies, or perhaps, you know, hint past presidents, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or allowing you to have the opportunity to travel and just experience this, this sport culture that you are so passionate about. 
Yeah, I mean, when, when I when I did this, my expectations were not that I was going to be making things for people that uh, that that you would know. Like, I'm, I figured when I started this, you know, this is gonna you know this is gonna tide me over for a year or something like that, and I'm gonna make things for people that I know. I'm gonna make things for my friends, and that's pretty much well. I didn't put the brakes on it from at that point, but you know, like that's those are my expectations. Like, I didn't think that I'd be working with household names. Um, so when I started right. seeing my products get picked up. Uh, the first one was Uncrate, and that's the one that kind of like kicked the doors open. That's a big deal yeah, too, right? Uh, like in the product space. Yeah, that was a big one. Um, and then from there, it was just you know blog after blog after blog. Um, and then I don't know. I just started traveling. I started doing shows, and I'd get out there, and I actually wanted to like get out there and meet the people who were because this this can be kind of lonely, to be honest with you. It's just me in this workshop, and it's great to get like get into my own head uh, and. Because I can get out here and just solve all my day's problems while I'm sewing a baseball. It's a contemplative, meditative kind of state that I get into. But there's not, there's no people walking in. Um, in fact, sometimes that, that's a bit of a distraction. So, like when the kids come in here, they want to play with stuff, and um, right, yeah, you know, that's cool. I'm glad you guys are enjoying these colored pencils on that desk. But you know, I'm trying to like get into my own head. <laughs> um, so yeah, just getting the stuff out there and meeting people and then just, it grew, uh, so, so quickly. Um, and, you know, eventually I think it was in 2014 or 2015, I got a call from the George W. Bush library saying he wants to have baseballs made and my head just exploded. Like, I can't believe like that was the first household name that I think I'd ever worked with. Um, and that was, you know, a president. Like, that's crazy. Um, but that's insane. Yeah. I mean, how did they even, did, did you find out how they discovered you? Uh, no, I don't know. No, just, you know, the internet. That is so well. Oh, actually I do know they were looking for someone to make uh, USA made baseballs. And so they, they Google that. They found me because uh, there's, <laughs> oh, well, you have, a, you must have a pretty good, pretty good Google ranking there. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm the only one really doing it. Um, so like yeah. this whole industry left the United States in 1974 so it's it's been gone longer than I've been alive, and you know it's just you know one man shop, kind of a bespoke type type thing that I'm doing here, and it just it's 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 grown from there too. So what about what about the stories that you hear, right? Because this is another thing. When I go places, people are like, "Oh, this is how makers of sport something that you've done that has sort of touched me or helped me, or I met this person through it or whatnot." Are people coming to you at these little events or these little shows that you go do and and telling you stories about maybe their grandfather and some kind of baseball memories? Like I'd imagine that that's you're getting that right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just having conversations at the little league, you know, talking to the parents and like, oh, my brother-in-law works for the Orioles, or you know, my uncle works for the Phillies, or something like that, or my dad played for the Dodgers. You know, it's like you don't realize that baseball is such a big part of even like your immediate surroundings until you just start yeah. talking about like, you know, as soon as I mention that I make baseballs, it's like whatever they were going to say next is completely off the table. And it's just, Oh my God, I can't believe you do that. You actually make money doing that. This is your job. You don't do anything else. And then it's, and then it's personal baseball stories from there on out. Like, you know, someone that they know, or, you know, uh, you know, maybe their dad didn't play, in the majors and the minors or college or whatever, but you know, they go to Wrigley field every year and like, that's their meeting place. And, you know, they have that afternoon experience and right. Like, you know, that's, that's the, the one day that they set aside or like uh, personally, I go to Cooperstown for induction every year. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which was just canceled, uh, sadly, yeah. for this year. But I've been doing that every year since 1998. And even before I started selling on the street there in 2016, uh, I still knew people because I'd been going there for 18 years before that. So you recognize these faces and you, know, you have these meetups and like, oh, now you're going to have a table and you're going to have a presence and you're going to be selling stuff. Like, that's so cool. So Yeah, no doubt. And everybody kind of has that cousin that tried out for the majors, yep. right? Like, exactly, yeah. Like, there's one of those stories. There's one in every town, right? Yep. Whether it's true or not. Well, man, listen, it's been awesome getting to uh, to hear your story. And, and obviously, we had a great chat. Uh, we met at MLC this past year in, in Atlanta. Where can people find your brand online, uh, follow you on social media, and, and that type of thing? Uh, the website is HuntingtonBaseballCo.com, and I'm at HuntingtonBBC on everything. Awesome. Well, man, appreciate you coming aboard and uh, wishing you continued success. Thank you so much, Adam. Appreciate it. Thanks again, William. My next guest is going to be Dane Storuston. Dane is a senior creative director at the NFL in Los Angeles, where he works on the NFL network, digital properties, as well as team identities and uniforms. He is also the owner of Gridiron Labs, a brand and interactive design studio. You can follow Dane on Twitter at Dane Storuston. That is at D-A-N-E-S-T-O-R-R-U-S-T-E-N. Big thanks again to William for coming aboard the podcast. Again, as he mentioned, you can find him on the socials at Huntington BBC. I actually purchased some balls, which I mentioned in the episode, and I will be giving away one each to people that retweet this show link and also follow both at Huntington BBC and Makers of Sport on Twitter and Instagram. I will randomly pick a winner in the next week or so, so be sure to follow along on both Twitter and Insta for those details. Past Makers of Sport episodes can be found on all podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or the website makersofsport.com. Going to the link makersofsport.com slash iTunes will take you directly to the Apple podcast link. If you do enjoy the sponsor-free content coming from Makers of Sport and are interested in keeping this show ad-free, you can support the show by joining the member community at makersofsport.com slash community. In exchange for your fiscal support, you'll have access to ever-changing content such as private Q&As with future, former, and special guests, monthly community video hangouts, as well as interact, share private, trustworthy feedback, and build professionals with like-minded professionals in the live chat. You'll also receive a 20% discount on all Makers of Sport products. Speaking of Makers of Sport products, I recently launched an apparel store. You can check that out at makersofsport.com slash store. There will be new designs launching, so please stay tuned. And every purchase goes to support the MOS brand as I pour dollars back into the company, allowing me to continue writing, researching, and bringing educational sports design content to you for free. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, click the five star and write about your experience with the show. This helps others like yourself discover the podcast and the value it brings educationally to people wanting to work on the creative side of the sports business. 
if you cannot support the show by any of the previously mentioned means, then these comments and rankings are a great way to show your support and love. I read every single one of them. I read every single tweet. It helps to keep me going. And I will also accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on social. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.